Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Kohelet, Ecclesiastes, chapter 5. And we'll read verses 1 through 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1, hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God, and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they consider not that they do evil. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty, To utter anything before God, for God is in heaven, and thou upon earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. For a dream cometh through the multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by multitude of words. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. (coughs) Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. Neither say thou before the angel that it was an error. Wherefore should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thine hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words there are also diverse vanities. But fear thou God. If thou seest the oppression of the poor and violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province, marvel not at the matter, for he that is higher than the highest regardeth, and there be higher than they. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. Thomas Vincent will provide a quotation for our, for our kickoff of this series. God's ordinances are profaned and abused when, number one, persons are irreverent in their attendance upon them in regard of the outward gesture of their bodies, laughing, talking, sleeping, or in any other way indecently behaving themselves in the time of prayer, preaching, singing, receiving the sacrament, or any other part of God's worship. Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God. Let all things be done decently and in order. When persons under ordinances are slight and formal, number two, as to the inward frame of their minds, and their minds are roving and wandering, and their hearts are dead and dull. This is very unbecoming of the majesty of God, whom in his ordinances they wait upon, and who, being a spirit, does chiefly look to the spiritual part of his service. God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Thus, Mr. Vincent. So, at our last session meeting, uh, we had a discussion and decided that it had been quite some time since we had talked about worship and profiting from it, I think probably well over 10 years where there's been a series from this pulpit on such things, although there are comments from time to time for sure. And so uh, we decided that we'd take a break before we jump into Proverbs chapter 12. And uh, I'm, uh, you know, I'm here to serve, right? That's great. I'm glad we're doing this. I I, I fully support it. I'm a little bit sad because I had a really good sermon prepared for the first set in Proverbs 12, but we'll get to that someday. had to do with the very close connection between discipline and knowledge. And we don't like to talk that, like that anymore, but it's true. The Bible, uh, God tells us it's true. So what I aim to do today uh, is introduce some broad concepts 
maybe with just a few details, but these broad concepts that we address today, Lord willing, will be taken up in more detail individually as we move through this series. When you think about worship and scripture, uh, what passages of the Bible come to mind that are instructive as to worship? I think not many would have come to Ecclesiastes 5, although reading the first eight verses, there is some great instruction there. But we have other places, don't we, that we will end up turning to. We'll look at the Apostle Paul's work in 1 Corinthians chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14, because there's some great instruction with regard to public worship. We will look at some other devotional literature in the Bible, uh, some of the poetic literature, some of the Psalms, certainly, teach us how to approach the Lord. Micah, the prophet, teaches us how to approach the Lord. He actually asks the question, how shall I come before the high God? Well, so eventually we'll, we'll, we'll get to Micah's work and we'll look and see what Micah had to say about that. Um, so really what I want to tell you here is that um, this sermon is going to bring up a lot of broad concepts. But those broad concepts will not be incrementally dealt with until later. So this is an introductory sermon. So uh, let's all buckle up and head down the road together. Solomon will write here in 5.1, Keep thy foot when thou goest into the house of God. What does it mean to keep your feet? Keep your footing. Hmm. Well, I think we could probably think of a few things, right? The first is, <clears throat> don't trip, <clears throat> don't stumble, don't get out of the way, um, certainly don't fall, keep your foot, keep your feet. It is possible, isn't it, to come to the Lord's house and not profit at all, but to be the worse for it instead. Is that possible? It is. It is. We will, we will see places of scripture in a moment that, that show us that. And so the first thing that we want to see here is that proper worship is more than coming to the house of God. We have to be able to see that at this opening line here. Keep your foot when you go to the house of God. Notice going's not enough. There's something else that you have to do. You have to keep your foot. And in keeping your, your foot, Solomon is perhaps telling us that there is a right way of proceeding. There's a right path to walk on. There are right steps to take, if you will. Make sure you don't stumble. Make sure you don't trip. Make sure you don't fall. Make sure you don't get out of the way. Keep your foot when you come into the house of God. Well... As we said a moment ago, it's possible to come into the house of God not for profit at all, right? Not that you would profit spiritually at all, but instead you would be the worse for coming. Certainly we might say that with regard to Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10, when immediately after putting the temple or the tabernacle into service, they brought strange fire and were consumed by the Lord. We might think also of Numbers chapter 16 and Korah and his rebellion. We spoke of the sons of Korah earlier. Now we speak of Korah himself who was a Levite and came before the tabernacle of the Lord with his censer in his hand, which he never should have had because Levites didn't have censers. That's not what they did. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed all of those 250 men that had their censers in their hand. We might remember that this is not just an Old Testament construct, but also a New Testament construct. Paul will say when you come together, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. To the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and because of their abuses at the Lord's Supper, because of their want of keeping their foot, there were many among them that were weak and sickly, and some had fallen asleep. That is, some of them had died. Because when they came to worship... They came without keeping their foot. Some hear the word 
and yet they twist it, they rest it, they pervert it to their own destruction. 2 Peter 3.16 tells us that, identifying the words of the Apostle Paul as scripture that has been twisted, even in Peter's day, to the destruction of those scripture wrestlers, if you will. And some come even with a proper form, but have not kept their hearts in the way of godliness. And so the Lord expresses his displeasure to them, actually framing the book of Isaiah with that. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1 for a moment. We turn to verse 10 of Isaiah chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. And I delight not in the blood of bullocks or lambs or of he goats. When ye come to appear before me, Who hath required this at your hand? Listen to this next phrase. To tread my courts. Were they keeping their feet? Not properly. Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hateth. They are a trouble to me. I am weary to bear them. And when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. How does Isaiah close out his prophecy? Turn to the last chapter of Isaiah, chapter 66. Verse 1, thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me and where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath mine hand made and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembleth at my word. He that killeth an ox is as if he slew a man. He that sacrificeth a lamb as if he cut off a dog's neck, he that offereth an oblation, as if he offered swine's blood, he that burneth incense, as if he blessed an idol, yea, they have chosen their own ways, and their soul delighteth in their abominations. I also will choose their delusions, and will bring their fears upon them, because when I called, none did answer, when I spake, they did not hear, but they did evil before mine eyes, And chose that in which I delighted not. Hear the word of the Lord, ye that tremble at his word. Your brethren that hated you and cast you out for my name's sake said, Let the Lord be glorified, but he shall appear to your joy and they shall be ashamed. How does Isaiah open and end his prophecy? With people that although they are maintaining a proper form, everything we read in chapter 1 and chapter 66 were things that God had commanded, but they, but they did not bring them with hearts purified by faith. And so the Lord says, when you come before me like that, when your eyes are after your own covetousness, when, when you are tolerating and maintaining and living in heart sins and you come before me and expect to be accepted you bring a bullock that is the most costly most expensive offering in the old testament and what's it like is as if he slew a man as if he was a murderer he that sacrificeth a lamb as if he cut off a dog's neck he that offereth an oblation as if he offered swine's blood He that burneth incense as if he blessed an idol. They've chosen their own ways. And their soul delighteth in their abominations. Beloved, simply coming to the house of God does not guarantee profiting from the worship. Over and again we see this in scripture. There are other things required. And if we just pull up for a moment and chat about that... It's, it is amazing to see what goes on in churches that passes for worship elements these days. 
Now, we may not agree with our brethren in every particular, but we have an agreement in the main. But there are things that go on in worship services today across the gamut of the visible church that are indeed abominable. They're simply abominable. Okay, so those things, they need to be turned out. They need to be put away. If the people of God are going to profit from the worship of God, we've got to... We've got to hear him and obey his commandments. We get that part. We're regulative worship people. We understand. But beloved, we can't rest in a form either. We can't rest only in a form. Oh, well, my church only does this, that, and that. And so when I go to church, we just keep commandments uh, that God has commanded us to keep in our worship. And so we all profit. No, it's not. It's much more than that. Here in Isaiah... We saw the Lord telling them in chapter 1 to stop doing what they were doing, even though those were lawful things. And they continued to do them by the end of Isaiah. And the Lord says, you know what that's like? That's like being a murderer, breaking a dog's neck, and bringing that in, offering swine's blood. That's what that's like. So there's a heart element, beloved. There's a spiritual element to our worship that is not satisfied only with a form. And when Solomon will tell us to keep our foot, and when Isaiah tells us, you know what they're doing, they're treading on my courts. Well, this is a little bit of wordplay here to help us to realize that more than a form is what's necessary. When we come before the high God, how shall we appear before him? Well, we'll get to more of that in a few moments. Let's look at the passage in Malachi chapter 2 for a moment. I'm sorry, Malachi chapter 1. In verse 10. Let's back up to 6. A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If I then be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priests that despise my name. And ye say, wherein have we despised thy name? He offered polluted bread upon mine altar. And ye say, wherein have we polluted thee? In that ye say, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And ye offer the blind for sacrifice. And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if he offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee or accept thy person? Saith the Lord of hosts. And now I pray you, beseech God that he will be gracious unto us. This have been by your means. Will he regard your persons? Saith the Lord of hosts. Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do you kindle fire on mine altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand for... From the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, and in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and shall be a, and, and, and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. Well, what's going on in Malachi's day? Same thing. They're offering things they shouldn't be offering. And the Lord says what? Stop. Just stop. In Isaiah, he said stop. Second time in Isaiah, he said, stop. Consider your hearts, consider your feet, keep your feet. And in Malachi, he said, stop. We saw this a few years back, didn't we? We saw the Lord himself close churches. Right? The Lord closed, I don't know, fully 80% of the churches across some places in this land. Why would the Lord close the church? Because people aren't keeping their feet. We're not keeping our feet when we go into the house of God as that broad understanding of the church. So the first thing then is keeping of the foot means that there's direction for us here. That there's steps to be taken. We must keep our feet in such a way that that we hear God and his commands. And what does he command? He says, here's my form. Worship me like this. And as I said a moment ago, we may not agree with every particular, with every one of our reforming brethren on that. 
That's okay. Everybody agrees on the principle. But then he says more than that. He says, come unto me with more than just that form. Come unto me with your heart. Come unto me with that affection and that reverence and that awe and that that recognition of who I am and who you are. Come unto me with your heart in, in the way of grace as well as your form. So that's the first thing in keeping your foot. The second thing in keeping your foot is a little bit more specific. The rabbis understood uh, Solomon to be saying, take off your shoes here, keep your feet in that way, as a sign of reverence, in other words. Well, that's not a bad association to this passage. We'll remember Moses in Exodus 3.5 is instructed to remove his shoes because he's standing in the presence of God. The place whereon you stand is holy. We'll remember Joshua met with that same uh, correction when he stood before. (laughs) Joshua was pretty bold. He comes right up to the angel of the covenant and he says, Are you for us or against us? The angel of the covenant says, Wrong question. I'm here as as the angel of the Lord of hosts. Whose side are you on? Take off your shoes. The place whereon you stand is holy. And so Joshua immediately dresses up his heart. Right? Takes off his shoes and shows that kind of reverence. Well, reverence is indeed a part of keeping your foot when you come into the house of God. Reverence. And what do we mean by reverence? Except that we mean that we must remember who God is and who we are. Reverence is one of those broad strokes without which the Lord will not be pleased with our worship, no matter what form it takes. Notice in Psalm 76, we begin our reading in verse 7, Thou, even thou, art to be feared, and who may stand in thy sight when once thou art angry? Thou didst cause judgment to be heard from heaven The earth feared and was still when God arose to judgment to save the meek of the earth. Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. The remainder of wrath thou shalt restrain. Vow and pay unto the Lord your God. Let all that be round about him bring presents unto him that ought to be feared. He shall cut off the spirit of princes. He is terrible to the kings of the earth. Now I would never be dogmatic on this. But I believe that Psalm 76 was written upon the occasion of the defeat of Sennacherib's army outside Jerusalem. I'd never be dogmatic on it, but listen to what it says. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. In Salem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. There break he the arrows of the bow, the shield and the sword and the battle Salah, thou art more glorious and excellent than the mountains of prey. The stout-hearted are spoiled. They have slept their sleep, and none of the men of might have found their hands. At thy rebuke, O God of Jacob, both the chariot and the horse are cast into a dead sleep. Now, some have said that's Egypt. I say that's the Assyrian army when they woke up dead in their tents outside of Jerusalem when Hezekiah prayed and asked the Lord to deliver them. Those stout-hearted slept their sleep when God arose to judgment to save all the meek of the earth. And so God is to be feared. He is to be feared by everyone, not just his people, but he is to be feared by everyone. When we approach the Lord, we must bring with us a sense of reverence. In Psalm 89, we read verse 6, Who in the heaven can be compared unto the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened unto the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. Had in reverence of all them that are, quote, about him. That is, all that gather to worship him. We come... We must come with reverence. And this is another aspect of keeping the feet. 
Uh, we could look at some other passages of Scripture. We'll not take the time to do it. Take these down and look them up later. Deuteronomy 28, 58. Jeremiah 50, 20 through 24 and 10, 7. These passages teach us that we must be mindful of who it is that we approach. It is indeed nothing or no one else than the God of all. The God of all flesh. The Lord of armies, as he is called. Our God and Redeemer. And so reverence begins with a recognition of who God is. There was a, um, there was a passage in Ezekiel describing that New Testament visionary temple. And it says that the people of God, when they come in, they will not turn around and go back out the same gate. They will come in and they will continue straight through and go out the other side. And I believe that's emblematic. It's a, it's a, it's a prophecy about the proper reverence that we have to God, that we will not turn back from that, that we will move straight ahead, that we will remain on that worshipful pass or that worshipful path through the temple of God. We will keep our feet, in other words. How do we do that? We do that by remembering the majesty of God. Who is it that we approach? And beloved, if I might... Uh, interrupt the flow here for just a moment and tell you that you do this by preparation. You remind yourselves in your preparation who you're approaching. You remember passages like what Moses asked the Lord in Deuteronomy chapter 32 when he said to the Lord, show me thy glory. And the Lord said, well, you don't know what you're asking. No one can see my face and live, he said. You remember? No one can see my face and live. And yet, what did God do to reveal himself to us? He put on our face instead. This is who we come to. This is the God we worship. And so we must remember these things about him, that he is to be feared Solomon will double down on that and he'll, he'll bring up an eighth commandment thing to help us with that. Say, Pastor, I don't see the eighth commandment in Ecclesiastes 5, 1 and 2. Well, give me a minute. You will. You will. What is the eighth commandment and what does it establish? It establishes the rights of property, doesn't it? Very simply, it establishes the rights of property. When someone says, thou shalt not steal to you, you understand that there are things that are yours and things that are not yours. That with the things that are yours, you have a particular liberty that you don't have with things that are not yours. Right? Um, you know, you, uh, you walk into your neighbor's house, you take his keys off of, the, off of the kitchen counter, and you go and you drive his car around town and use up all of his fuel that he filled his tank with, and you bring it back. He's not going to be happy. Even a thief understands the Eighth Commandment, right? How does a thief understand the Eighth Commandment? Well, when you break into his house and take his stuff, he says, hey, what are you doing? He knows. Rights of private property are scriptural rights. Now, in our day, we have worked almost at every level in the church and in the state to destroy the rights of property. This is a godly thing, this understanding of the Eighth Commandment and property. And we've talked about this before, only to mention it here in passing, that when you have rights of private property, you know what your responsibility is. You know what field is that you plow. And you don't plow your neighbor's field. You don't take his crops. You have something that God has given you to take care of. You remember when we read in Deuteronomy about all the travels of the Israelites. They came around that southern end there of the promised land. And they ended up on the east side of Jordan. And the Lord took them to Mount Seir. And he said, nope, that's not yours. That's Esau's. They traveled a little farther north. They saw the land of Moab. Nope, that's not yours. That's the land of Moab. They traveled a little farther north. They saw the land of Ammon. Nope, that's not yours. I've given that to them. They or I displaced 
the giants from off of that land so that they could live there. Not you. Leave them alone. Don't meddle with them. Buy uh, food and water with money as you pass through. Remember that? And then they finally crossed over Ar, right? The river Arnon. And they ended up in Sihon, uh, right? Sihon's land. Uh, and, they, and the Lord said, yes, I've given this one to you. So take it. It's yours. So when you take it, you cultivate it, you take care of it, and you make it bud forth for me. This is what private property is all about. Okay, well, Solomon will use private property here. In this first phrase, keep thy foot when thou goest into the house of God. Oh, it's the house of God. There's property rights here, and God will use those property rights, won't he? He will remind us of the Eighth Commandment and that this house belongs to Him. We don't have the same kind of liberty in this house that we do in our own house, do we? Well, now, I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I go home and I'll put my feet up on the table. Right? I may lay down on top of the bed without pulling back the covers. I may open the fridge and take something out and eat it without asking anybody. I've got liberty at my house to do some things, don't I? Do we have that same kind of liberty in the house of God? No, it belongs to him. It's his house. The Lord claims that propriety over his house. And that's why the Lord saw, uh, saw fit to reveal in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 12, why are you treading my courts like this? You don't get to come in here and do that. This is my house. You will have a reverence for this house that is commensurate with the reverence that you have for my name, my person. And the Lord does the same thing with regard to the Sabbath, doesn't he? In Isaiah 58, you turn with me there, we got another foot analogy. Just two verses at the end of the chapter, 13 and 14. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord and honorable, and shalt honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words, then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord, and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth, and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. You notice what the Lord does here. It's completely geared toward property rights. Take your foot off of my Sabbath. In other words, don't treat the Sabbath, my Sabbath, as you would a piece of land walking all over it that's your own. Oh, look at that. I'm going to, make a, I'm going to blaze a trail through here. Oh, look at that. I'm going to dig a pond out right here. Oh, look at this. I'm going to, I'm going to build me a little fishing cabin right there. I like this piece of land. It's mine. I'm going to treat it like my own. The Lord says, take your foot. Off my holy day. And how are we sure that that's what he means by that? Because he'll go on to say, when you come into my courts on my holy day, stop doing your things, your words, your thoughts, your stuff. This isn't the place for that. You have a liberty at your homes to do those things. Paul will say what to the Corinthians? What? Have you not houses to eat and drink in? Don't turn this into a house of religious feasting and call it a religious service because it's not. I haven't commanded it. Take your foot off my house. Take your foot off my day, the Lord says. So we understand propriety then. Whose property is it? Whose courts are being treaded? Whose Sabbath is being trampled? So the principle then in this passage is that we must have reverence for God and all that he claims as his own, that which is holy and belongs to him. It's interesting, isn't it, to remember Jacob in Bethel. Turn with me to Genesis 28. <clears throat> we don't have time to read the whole chapter, but there's a... There's a place, let me just remind you what's happening. 
So Isaac calls Jacob and he says, uh, you're going to have to take a wife far, far away from here. Uh, from other people that have come under special revelation, like my family back in Haran. So travel over there and find yourself a wife. Oh, by the way, the other reason that I'm sending you out, it's, it's a trivial thing, but Esau wants to kill you. So go get yourself a wife, live there a while. Hopefully his anger will be pacified by the time you come back. Go find a wife, raise a family, and I'll see you in about, as it turns out, 20 plus years. Away he goes. Well, if, if, if Jacob's a 21st century uh, standard guy that lives in this country, you know, he's, his, his lips hanging out, you know, he's dragging his feet. Oh, poor me, I don't have anything, I don't have a family. Right? And so he, he travels one night's, one day's distance out, and he lays down, <clears throat> and he thinks, I'm all alone. God has forsaken me. <clears throat> Perhaps Esau's going to get the inheritance after all. Esau's the promised seed. Here I am all alone, fleeing for my life. This is not what I anticipated, but here I am. So he lays down. And in the night, God comes to him in a dream. And this is the famous dream of the ladder, right? And the angels of God ascending and descending. And God standing at the top of that ladder and reiterating the Abrahamic promise to Jacob. Oh, what a comfort that must have been to him. God met Jacob at his lowest point with that word of the gospel and said, you remember all those promises that I made to Abraham? That his seed was going to inherit the earth. That he was going to be the father of many nations. And that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. By the way, Paul calls that preaching the gospel to him in Genesis, sorry, Galatians chapter 3. They both start with G. Give me a break. So in Galatians 3 we have that gospel language. And that's used once again here with Jacob. And so what happens? Jacob wakes up. And he says, listen to these words. Surely the Lord is in this place and I knew it not. What does he say beyond that? Listen to what he says. These words. And Jacob waked out of his sleep and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I knew it not. And he was afraid. And he said, How dreadful is this place it is none other than but the house of God this is the gate of heaven and Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone that he had put for his pillows and set it up for a pillar and poured oil upon the top of it and he called the name of that place Bethel but the name of that city was called Luce at the first and Jacob vowed a vow saying if God be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on so that I come again to my father's house in peace then shall the Lord be my God and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house and of all that thou shalt give me I will surely give the tenth unto thee. Well the Christological import of this passage is is beyond imagining. Jesus will, in, at the end of uh, chapter 1 of John's gospel, he will identify himself as that ladder upon whom the angels of God are ascending and descending to Nathaniel. Jacob, for his part here, he recognizes that this is the house of God, that he is going to be the owner of this land because of God's promise. And so he takes, well, what did he have? What did he have to offer the Lord that day? Well, what did he use for a pillow? A rock. And so he used that. He set that up. He took the pillow that was his, or the rock that was his pillow the night before, and he made it a pillar the next day, because that was all he had. And he had a little bit of oil in a, in a little leather bottle, and he poured that oil on that rock. He gave God what he had. Why? Because God has just told him that he's going to inherit it all. He's not concerned about that anymore. But what does he say? This is a dreadful place. Why? Because God is here and I knew it not. And so what Jacob does faithfully, and this is fascinating if you think about it, what do kings do when they take over a land? What's one of the first things that they do? They rename all the cities, don't they? 
They name all the cities after their own name. That was a standard practice in the ancient Near East. (laughs) Jacob steps up as the owner of that land and says, This is not Luz. This is Bethel, the house of God. And I worshipped him here. And it is still called Bethel today, beloved. Today. Jacob understood this reverence. And so what did he do? He offered, he worshipped, he prayed, he vowed, and he vowed to give God a tenth of all. He saw the Lord Jesus Christ as that latter, that only communication between heaven and earth. And where Christ is revealed in all of his mediatorial regalia there, that is the church. And so Jacob worshipped his king. He approached God with reverence that night. Beloved, how many of us have at some point in our lives walked into the church as Jacob walked into Luz, not really reckoning that God was there? Well, if we haven't prepared, if we haven't meditated, if we haven't turned our minds in that direction to remember who it is that we approach. It is possible even for us, the professing people of God, to approach God, the place where we're going to meet him, as Jacob approached Luz. Now we hope that God would be gracious to us and we would leave as Jacob left Bethel. So, what have we seen thus far then? We have seen that the house of God is where God has revealed his covenantal presence. It is his house, his place to dwell. We don't have that same liberty in his house than we do at our own. So we we ask ourselves this question, did I know that God is here? Did I know that he has promised his presence in the worshiping assembly? Are there such places as the world or in the world as this where the Lord is there and the comers knew it not? Do you remember the end of the book of, or the last line really, of the book of Ezekiel? In chapters 40 through 48, there is a wonderful prophetic picture given of the church of the New Testament. And it's got some of the elements that we saw in Revelation 22 today. It's got the river. It's got the trees. It's got the gates. Right? It's got that east gate where, the, where Messiah the prince comes in. It's got all of that stuff. And you know what the name of that city is? Do you remember the last few words of the prophecy of Ezekiel? Jehovah Shammah. What does it mean? God is there. God is there. May I say, may I be so bold as to assert, not only do we think God is there, we think God is here. This is the place where his word is opened, where his people come to praise him and to offer up unto him. This is, in that sense, his house, the Bethel, the house of God, the Bethel, as they call it today. This is the place where God dwells with his people. So we approach God in his house, keeping our feet, keeping a straight course, step by step, with preparation, with reverence, with awe, with a keeping of his commandments and with a keeping of our heart. These are the broad strokes, I think, that Solomon sets out for us here in um, Ecclesiastes 5.1 well we have some more uh, by way of notes but not more by way of time let me uh, take two or three minutes and introduce where we're going next the next thing that we see uh, is 
Where is it? Sorry, I'm distracted, not turning to the right place. Ecclesiastes 5, keep thy foot when thou goest in the house of God. And then notice the next phrase, and be more ready to hear. Be more ready to hear. Another broad stroke, right? What is that breadth of what Solomon would have us learn there? Another basic principle of worship, not only reverence, not only the the, um, the rulership of God in his worship, not only remembering his person, but humility. Humility. What does it mean to be more ready to hear than to speak? It means to be humble. Be ready to hear. God is in heaven. We are upon earth. So the first is by way of comparison. Solomon will tell us, be ready, be more ready to hear than to speak. But the second speech is directed toward God, and so that speech must be used rightly, and it must be humble. Larger Catechism 157. Listen to what it says. How is the word of God to be read? The Holy Scriptures are to be read with a high and reverent esteem of them, with a firm persuasion that they are the very word of God, and that He only can enable us to understand them, with desire to know, believe, and obey the will of God revealed in heaven, with diligence and attention to the matter and scope of them, with meditation, application, self-denial, and prayer. LC 157. Can I sum up what that one just said? Humility. Be ready to hear, not to speak, not to object, not to criticize, not to judge. Be ready to hear Be ready to hear what God would say. Remember our prior reading in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and 4. Did God ever say to speak to a people as he has spoken to the likes of us? Be ready to hear because when God speaks, that is his gracious self-revelation. Receive it with humility What is required of those that hear the word preached? 160. It is required of those that hear the word preached that they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Examine what they hear by the scriptures. Receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, readiness of mind as the word of God. Meditate and confer of it. Hide it in their hearts bring forth the fruit of it in their lives. Ready to hear. Because hearing, when it's God's word that is being spoken, hearing equals humility. Another one of those broad concepts that we must bring to the worship if we're going to profit. All right, well, let's wrap up then. What have we seen today? We have seen, first of all, in keeping thy foot, that there is direction. That must be honored if we're going to profit from the public worship. You can't expect to profit spiritually from public worship stepping outside of God's directions in worship. And I'm going to go ahead and step in it here. Uh, I have been to churches that have a uh, 128-piece orchestra and a 60 or 75-member choir And they go on and on for some time during the worship service. And while I believe that there was a 288-member choir and orchestra during the days of David that played during the sacrifices, I don't think that's proper New Testament worship. I've said that before. I've been on record for years now saying that. Okay? And so I don't think we can expect a profit from that. The Lord hasn't commanded someone to stand up in the middle or at the pulpit and sing all by themselves, a solo, or they're soloists. And I don't think we can expect to profit from that. I think we can expect to be entertained, but spiritually, I don't think we're going to profit from that much. I don't think we're going to profit at all from those things that God has set outside of his commandments. And I think there is great reward, right, in keeping what God has commanded in worship. So keep your foot with regard to that straight way to conduct yourself through the house of God. Keep your foot with regard to reverence, is what we learned secondly. Keep your foot with regard to reverence. We come before the holy God, before whom the entire earth 
trembles. The, the burning angels, the seraphim, the ones that are constantly being purified by fire, the seraphim, they won't even look at him. They won't even speak to him. They won't even touch down in the same room where he is. Reverence and awe as we approach the Lord. Remember who it is that we approach. Remember Jacob. Surely the Lord was, is in this place and I knew it not. This is a dreadful place because God is here. I think that's a statement of fear on Jacob's part. What if I had misstepped in God's presence? I didn't even know he was here. And then thirdly, humility. Humility. So we have direction, inner and outer direction. We have reverence and we have humility. All from this first verse here of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I think that that is indeed the first three things that we ought to remember if we're going to profit in the worship of God. Let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the time that we have had to review these portions of Thy Word and to remember what Thou hast said and to make use of them for ourselves. Father, we confess that there have been times we have walked in to worship Thee on a Sunday morning or a Sunday afternoon in the afternoon service and our distractions are such that it might be truly said of us, surely God is in this place and I knew it not or I recognized it not or I acknowledged it not. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for exercising a liberty in thy house where it doesn't belong. Forgive us, Lord, for for stepping outside and not keeping our feet with regard to a proper form and heart in worship. And Lord, grant us that we might profit spiritually from reverence and humility, a proper sense of propriety and direction for the inner and outer man. And that that profiting uh, would be such an encouragement to us that we might never turn away from it. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.